Support for Mind, Body, Health, and Politics comes from our members and the Mendocino Coast District Hospital, offering medical services including emergency room, obstetrics, intensive care, inpatient services, home health, ambulance services, physical therapy, laboratory, diagnostic imaging, oncology services, and more. More information about Mendocino Coast District Hospital and its services is at mcdh.org. And support for Mind, Body, Health, and Politics also comes from our members and Radiant Solar Technology. Ready to help plan power systems, advise on applicable incentives, conform to current codes, and prepare for future expansion. From solar panels to high-tech battery boxes, through sun, wind, and water, Radiant Solar Technology helps homes and businesses fill their renewable energy needs. Information at 707-485-8359 and RadiantSolarTech.com. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and thank you for tuning in today. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Today, we're going to have an interview with Dr. Irving Kirsch of Harvard University, and he is going to be talking about his book, The Emperor's New Drugs, Exploding the Antidepressant Myth. If you're taking a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, SSRI, or if you know someone, or if you have a family member who is taking an SSRI, you must stay tuned for this interview. It's imperative This might be the most important thing that you've ever heard about the SSRIs. I'm going to give you a little tiny taste of what Dr. Irving Kirsch has been told about his research. People have argued to him, professionals have said, even if these drugs don't work, it was wrong to publish the studies. We shouldn't tell patients that the drugs don't work because it will undermine their faith in treatment. Did you hear that, folks? I mean, I can't see your faces, but I I can't... Did you hear that? We shouldn't tell patients that the drugs don't work because it will undermine their faith in treatment. Well, Dr. Irving Kirsch of Harvard strongly disagrees. Stay tuned for this very important interview. But first... News and Notes in Psychology and Medicine. Three hours northwest of San Francisco, there's a coastal town called Mendocino. Sitting on a cliff overlooking the Pacific, this town of about a thousand persons is an idyllic Shangri-La. There is no governing body, no police, a volunteer fire department, and extremely little crime. Enter Cocaine. Anonymous sources, and you know who they are because you hear about them on television all the time, the famous anonymous sources. Anonymous sources say that the town of Mendocino is being overrun with a blizzard of cocaine. Here is what respondents who are questioned about cocaine have to say. This is based on thousands of uh, respondents, by the way. The advantages of cocaine. After all, there are advantages to all drugs, aren't there? The advantages. Excitement. It makes partying better. 
more festive, easier, gives feelings of being high, relaxed. It gives self-confidence, makes one clear-headed, more concentrated on tasks, and more creative. It's possible to drink more alcohol, better sex, eases communication, relationship, lessens shyness. It gives energy. One needs less sleep. One's less easily tired. Sounds almost like a wonder drug, doesn't it? More energy, more confidence, feeling good, better sex. Let's hear about what are sometimes called side effects. It's a funny word, a couple of words, isn't it? Side effects. They don't really happen on the side, by the way. You do know that. They happen to our entire system. They should be called entire system negative effects. Here are the disadvantages that our respondents said about cocaine. It's expensive. It's bad for health. It has negative physical effects. It creates dependence. It takes a lot of time to recuperate. It makes people aggressive and irritable. People use more alcohol. It creates depression, and it creates insomnia, and it creates negative feelings. So that's it for cocaine, advantages and disadvantages. Dear listeners, the choice is yours. Only you can decide if you think the advantages are worth the negative effects. But be aware that reality tells us that cocaine is not a consciousness-expanding drug, and it can be seriously debilitating. At the same time, we have another drug issue going on, not in the town of Mendocino, this little coastal idyllic village, but all over the United States. Back in the 1990s, doctors were persuaded to treat pain as a serious medical issue. Very serious. There's good reason for that. About 100 million Americans, that's one out of three approximately, suffer from chronic pain. Chronic pain. So what happened? The pharmaceutical companies jumped in and took advantage of this great concern on the part of the medical community. Through a huge marketing campaign, and I mean huge, we got doctors to prescribe. Are we hearing a technical problem there? Some kind of a chattering sound? Where is that coming from? Well, maybe that's okay. Does that sound better, folks? Wonder what caused that. Anyway, the pharmaceutical companies, they got doctors all over the country to prescribe Oxycontin and Percocet, even though the evidence for opioids treating long-term pain, chronic pain, is very weak. You're going to hear more about evidence from Dr. Kirsch in a little few minutes. Well, despite their effectiveness for short-term pain, which is where they are effective, they're not effective for long-term, but the side effects, there was strong evidence that the opioids cause a great deal of harm. Painkillers proliferated, landing in the hands of not just patients, but also teenagers rummaging through their parents' medicine cabinets, other family members and friends of patients, and of course, eventually, the black market. Now what we have is the highest number of people dying from this of just about any other drug in American history. In comparison, 58,000 
soldiers died in the Vietnam War. 62,000 died of drug overdoses in 2016. 55,000 Americans died of car crashes at the peak of car crashes in 1972. 62,000 died from the opioid epidemic. 43,000 died due to AIDS during the peak in 1995. 62,497 from the opioid epidemic. And on and on it goes. Beware, folks. Beware of opioids. We know you're having pain. We know one out of three of us are having pain. I certainly am no stranger to pain. Those of you who know me know that I suffer from a great deal of pain from various accidents, as well as my height, which causes lower back pain. But opioids are not the solution. We're still hearing this strange sound every once in a while. Please forgive me for that. Okay, you heard what I have to say about cocaine. You've heard something about the opioids. Now we're going to talk about the emperor's new drugs. The emperor's new drugs. Dr. Irving Kirsch was professor of psychology at the University of Hull in the United Kingdom. He was also a professor, he is still a professor emeritus at the University of Connecticut. He's now associate director of the placebo, I'll get the full name of that from Dr. Irving Kirsch, but it's the the placebo uh, studies. What is the name of it? Studies and the therapeutic relationship. Thank you. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Thank you for having me on the air. Your book, at the foundation of it, is a scientific comparison of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and placebo. Is that correct? serotonin reuptake inhibitors, other antidepressants as, uh, as well. Okay. For those of you who are listening, the short list of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, I wonder why I said that for those of you who are listening. I wouldn't be saying that to those of you who are not listening because you wouldn't be hearing this. Well, this, the SSRIs are Selexa, Lexapro, Ciprolex, Paxil, Prozac, Luvox, Zoloft. I need to add to that, Irving? Well, you can also add the other kinds of antidepressants, like the SNRIs, which would be, Effexor would be an example of of that. Um, The research that uh, my colleagues and I have done, the other research I have shown, uh, that I have seen, apply not just to SSRIs, but to all antidepressants. And one of the things that uh, I can tell you from the literature is that there is not any significant meaningful difference between one antidepressant and another. Mostly what you're getting with all of them is a placebo effect. Okay, folks, so what Dr. Kirsch, Dr. Irving Kirsch is telling us is that what we're talking about here applies to all antidepressants. So now that's correct. Okay. So now you're going to take us back and give us a little historical introduction 
to how you got involved comparing placebo to the SSRIs. But before we do your historical introduction, we're going to ask you to please tell us in your words, what is a placebo? That's an excellent question. A placebo, in its simplest definition, is a sham treatment, a, a dummy pill it's sometimes called. It's used to find out what the real chemical effect of a drug uh, or, or medi- medication is. So the placebo will be a pill, it will look like the real medication, but it won't have uh, the active ingredient in it. Now, before we go again to explain, the, go into your history, we're talking about placebo. You talk about two different kinds of placebos, and I think it's important that our listeners understand the two different kinds. You talk about a placebo, and then you talk about something called an active placebo. Tell us about that. Okay. Uh, active placebos are very rarely used in, in, in research. An active placebo is a drug that produces side effects, produces some negative effects, but doesn't have any effect on the condition being treated. And the idea is, if you are in a double-blind clinical trial that's trying to evaluate a drug, and it's a drug that has side effects, and you're not supposed to know whether you're getting the drug or the placebo, and the doctor's not supposed to know whether you're getting the drug or the placebo, but if you get some of the side effects produced by the drug, you're going to, it's called breaking blind. You'll realize, oh, oh, I must be getting the real uh, drug, and then you get an amplified, a larger placebo effect. So there have been a few studies where they have used active placebos in order to produce side effects so that patients don't realize that, oh, I'm in the drug condition rather than the placebo uh, condition to help disguise that. Okay, folks, so just to clarify, because this is very important, it's important that you understand it, it's important that you be able to tell your friends and your family about what this is about. A placebo is something that looks like the medicine, might taste like the medicine, it might smell like the medicine, but it's basically a sugar pill. Dr. Kirsch is telling us that what happens When you give a group of subjects, let's say you have 20 people, half of them are going to get this medicine, half are going to get the placebo. The people who get the placebo may know they've gotten the placebo because they don't get any reaction whatsoever. So then they've developed, but Dr. Kerr says it's rarely used, an active placebo. It means it isn't the medicine, but it gives you some kind of a feeling so you say to yourself, well, I must be in the group that's getting the medicine. That's what an active placebo is. Now, you heard Dr. Kirsch also use the term double blind. What that means is if Dr. Kirsch walks into a room and he's got 20 subjects and he's going to give half of them the medicine and half of them the placebo, he himself does not know which subjects are getting the placebo and which are getting the medicine. That's what means double-blind. Somebody behind Dr. Kirsch, who hands him this, the, the various pills, knows who are, which is, subject is getting which medicine, but he himself doesn't. The reason for that is because people like Dr. Kirsch, maybe Dr. Kirsch himself and his colleagues, have discovered that if 
The experimenter knows which person is getting the placebo and which is getting the medicine that influences the study. Okay? So now you're in the know on active and regular placebo and on what double-blind is. Now we get to the history with that foundation. How did this begin for you? Well, I've always been interested in the placebo effect for my whole academic life. That's been a passion of mine. Antidepressants was not a passion of mine. It was not a particular interest that I had. I was, in addition to doing research as a a professor of psychology, um, I also had a clinical uh, practice as a clinical psychologist. And before I got involved with antidepressant research, I would refer uh, depressed clients to psychiatric colleagues to get prescriptions of antidepressants. I assumed, like everyone else did, that they worked. But I also figured that there ought to be a good-sized placebo effect in the treatment of depression because people who are depressed are hopeless. It's one of the core features of depression. And if you promise someone relief that, oh, we've got this new medication, we've got this new treatment that's very likely to work, that can counter hopelessness. So I got interested in evaluating is there a placebo effect uh, in, in the treatment of depression? And in doing that, started looking through the literature, finding uh, clinical trials, finding trials in which people are getting nothing at all, trials in which people are getting placebo, trials in which people are getting an active antidepressant drug. And, in do, and the only reason that we were looking at the antidepressant drug is, at all is because that's the only place where you could find depressed people being given placebos and we were just surprised. My colleague Guy Saperstein and I, who was a graduate student of mine at that time, we were blown away by how small the difference was between the effect of the drug and the effect of the placebo. We were expecting a good-sized placebo effect, but we also thought there'd be a good-sized real drug effect. And what we found in our very first of a number of meta-analyses that I've now been involved in is the difference between drug and placebo was very small. People were getting better on the drug, but they were getting almost that much better also being given the placebo. And this isn't even an active placebo. It's just a regular uh, uh, clinical trial, which is, as you explained, double-blind. When you say you did an an analysis, and you called it a meta-analysis, please explain what that means so our listeners understand. So you have a group of studies, maybe 10 studies have been done, maybe 20, maybe 100 studies have been done on some question. And a meta-analysis is just a way of putting the data from all of those studies together to say, if we put them all together, what is it telling us? How much is the, uh, the effect of, uh, if we, of uh, antidepressants compared to placebo? If we look at all of the clinical trials, that have been done, not just one or two. And this method for doing that is called a meta-analysis. So how is it, how is it, Irving, that you and your graduate student, Saperstein, were able to ascertain that the placebo and the medicine were hardly different? How were you able to ascertain that Weren't the people 
who actually did the studies that you read able to ascertain that themselves? Oh, they knew it. Uh, and in fact, one of the critics of our first meta-analysis uh, referred to it as the dirty little secret in the pharmacology literature. The people doing the studies knew it was very small. The drug companies knew it was very small. As it turns out, the FDA knew that the difference between antidepressant and placebo was very small. The problem is that other people didn't know it. People starting to do meta-analyses, people doing uh, uh, research in the, uh, in the field, they didn't know it. We later found out that the difference was even smaller than we thought in the data that we had seen, because at that point we were looking only at the published data. And one of the things that I've learned since then is that close to half, four out of ten, of the clinical trials done by the drug companies on antidepressants have never been published. The FDA knows about them, the drug companies know about them, but researchers, physicians, insurance companies do not even know, did, did not, now they, they, are, they are learning, did not know about the existence of these negative clinical trials showing absolutely no difference between drug and placebo because they were withheld, they were suppressed from publication by the drug companies um, and not revealed in, you had to, at that point, had to use a Freedom of Information Act to get the information from the FDA. It's the only way you could find out about it. So your research indicates, if I understand you correctly, I'm going to say it back just to make certain, your research indicates that 40% of the clinical trials done on antidepressant medicine were never revealed to the public, to the practitioners, the doctors themselves around the country who prescribed the medicine. Did I get that correct? You got that correct, except that I can't claim credit for, for, for that. That was revealed also in studies, a study done in Canada, uh, getting data from the FDA, it was done in a, in a study by Swedish re regulators, uh, which found the same thing, and uh, we uh, also got the data from the FDA and were able to analyze those data, but the degree to which the drug companies were hiding the data, that be became clear from the work of, of uh, other researchers. You're, are you saying that the researchers in Canada... And the United and uh, and Sweden were checking out the research in the United States, and they came up with the forty percent. Or are they checking out their own drug company, the research in their own uh, countries? The Canadian study checked out the research um, in terms of the trials that were sent to the FDA in the United States um, to get approval for the drugs. The Swedish was uh, uh, research was based on trials sent to their regulatory agency, but those are the same trials. So we're talking about a possible worldwide phenomenon, not just limited to the United States. Is that correct? Definitely. Definitely. This is, and, and right now there is a, uh, a campaign that is taking place uh, to end the ability of hiding the data. Um, there's also already been some progress on that, Unlike in the past, clinical trials now have to be registered in advance so that at least you can know that the trial has been done. And the major medical journals 
will not publish uh, a, uh, they've agreed on this policy that they will not publish a trial unless before they've done the trial, they have registered so that if they don't get the results and they don't publish it, at least you can know that the trial was done. What people are working towards right now is expanding that and re to require that any clinical drug trial that's done, that the data needs to be made available so that physicians can know about it. But until that change is made, they are still withholding 40% of the research that is done. Is that correct? Well, I don't know what their practices are since the since, studies that have been done. Yes. So I can't talk to that. I know that I know that um, you no longer for newer drugs, you no longer have to um, use the Freedom of Information Act to get the data files from the FDA. They are the FDA now makes them available online, so it's a lot easier to get this information than it used to be. There now, has been progress in that. Now, tell us about the 60% of the studies that are revealed, because reading your book, you indicate that even within the studies that are revealed, there's a certain amount of uh, sleight of hand that's going on. Well, again, the difference between drug and placebo, even in the published studies, is very small. It's not clinically meaningful. That difference, if you, if, if you, the difference between drug and placebo is so small that if a patient changes by that amount, the clinician would see that as no change at all, would rate that as not having changed at all. It's statistically significant, but it's clinically meaningless. Let, let me give you an example of, of what I mean by that. Let's say a study was done on 500,000 people and has discovered that smiling increases life expectancy by 10 seconds. Now, here's what I can tell you. If your study is done in 500,000 people, that 10-second difference is probably going to be statistically significant. You can write it up as a success, but obviously it's meaningless in any real terms, in terms of uh, people's lives. And what I'm saying is the difference between the response to antidepressant drugs and the response to the placebo in these clinical trials is clinically meaningless. It's like that 10-second difference. People get better. People get better when they're given the drug. People get better when they're given the placebo. The problem is the difference between the to improvements is not much. So what's making them better is not the chemicals in the drugs. It's the placebo effect. But it costs. Because these are active drugs and they do have negative effects. And those negative effects can be very serious. And there are alternative treatments that work just as well in the short term, better in the long term, and don't have the negative effects, the side effects, and the health risks that are posed by the, that, that are, that are uh, a consequence of these uh, active medications. Let's come back now to a hypothetical exercise. 
20 people, well, let's make it a round number, 100 people. 100 people, 50 are given a placebo, 50 are given the antidepressant. You're saying that both groups improve. You're saying that both, both groups improve significantly, but you're explaining to us that a significant improvement statistically doesn't necessarily mean a, st- a significant improvement in the real world, and you pointed out that it could be significant uh, statistically that 10 seconds of, uh, of, uh, of a longer life is, is an improvement statistically, but in the real world, who cares about 10 seconds, uh, right? Well, let me, let, me, let me clarify that just, uh, just a bit, because when it comes to these clinical trials of antidepressants, within each group, some people are going to improve, not only statistically, but in a meaningful way. You do get, some people find no, feel no effect, some people get worse, some people uh, get better, some people get a lot better. The, and on average, if you look at the average, there is improvement and it reaches level that you would say clinically meaningful. The problem is, here's the trick, that that happens in the placebo group as well as in the drug group. So people are getting, may get some meaningful benefit, some, some don't. People who are, on average are getting some meaningful benefit, but it's not the chemical and the drug that's causing the benefit. The chemical and the drug can be doing harm without produ- and, and producing, as a chemical, no benefit at all. The voice you just heard telling us that the antidepressants are not only not doing better than the placebos, but they may be doing harm, is the voice of Dr. Irving Kirsch of Harvard University. We're interviewing him today here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics about his revelations in his book, The Emperor's New Drugs, subtitle, Exploding the Antidepressant Myth. The Emperor's New Drugs. Look it up on Google. You want to check it out. The Emperor's New Drugs. It's one of the most important books that I've ever come across in my 50 years in the profession, and that hardly says it, because we have tens of millions of people taking these antidepressants. Dr. Kirsch is also familiar with the work of Robert Whitaker, who you've heard several times on this program. We're going to I'm going to ask Irving actually about Whitaker's work rather than explaining it to you, but please recall that Whitaker's book is called Anatomy of an Epidemic. How long do you know Robert Whitaker? Oh, see, I have to think back when I uh, first uh, met him. I first became acquainted with him uh, by reading uh, his book. Uh, which I think came out more or less the same time as, as mine. As I recall, we, uh, not knowing each other, never having met, we were asked by a journal to write simultaneous book reviews of each other's books uh-huh. without seeing the other person's review. And so I read his book and was very impressed uh, uh, by it. Uh, he wrote a very lovely review of my book as well. Um, I later moved to Boston. I had been coming here from, I was living in England then, and I was coming here a few times a year working on some research at Harvard, and uh, so we got together and, and met. We've spoken at uh, conferences together uh, since then, and uh, I admire his work a lot. 
Tell our listeners, please, the basic thesis of Whitaker's work in Anatomy of an Epidemic. Yes. Uh, Whitaker's uh, thesis is, and he's a, he's a journalist, he's a journalist with a strong, wonderful understanding of science, and he's looked at outcomes of uh, long-term outcomes, not only of antidepressants, but of um, uh, psychiatric drugs in general. And his thesis says that in the long term, taking these drugs produces worse outcomes than not taking them, even for the uh, condition being treated. Now, I've only examined this in terms of the antidepressants because that has become an area of particular interest to me and I can uh, say that for antidepressants it's certainly true. One of the long-term consequences of taking antidepressants is that if you do get better it increases the likelihood of your getting depressed again in the future as opposed to getting better by any other means. Short-term benefits from one treatment and another seem to be about the same. You get the same short-term benefits by physical exercise. You can get the same short-term benefits from um, uh, psychotherapy. But in the long term, if you've gotten those benefits by taking an antidepressant, you're more likely to get depressed again than if you've gotten recovered through any other means. So it's actually a long-term negative effect, and that's what Whitaker is bringing to our attention. Exactly. The other thing I recall, and check me out on this, please, is that he is saying that the theory that people suffering from various mental conditions requiring treatment, the theory that they have aberrations in their brain chemistry is mistaken, that they do not, that they have what you, we might call normal brain chemistry, namely they have the same brain chemistry as the rest of us, and then when they take these antidepressant medications, they are creating an abnormality in their own brain chemistry. And so then when they attempt to go off the antidepressant, they then go through a withdrawal from the antidepressant which makes them think that they're getting back into their bad condition, but, but actually what they're doing is going through withdrawal from the antidepressants. What do you think about that? There are about 30 to 50% of people who are on antidepressants, if they try to stop, they show withdrawal symptoms. So that is certainly uh, known and known to be the, uh, the case. And for some people, it makes it very hard to get off antidepressants even when they want to. And they uh, may need to taper uh, because the antidepressants in that sense are acting as, as, uh, they are acting as if they were addictive drugs. They are producing withdrawal symptoms, and it can be very hard uh, to get off of them. So we have a situation here where you, your evidence, your research indicates that the antidepressant medication does not surpass placebo. You point out that the antidepressant medication in itself over time causes problems. Whitaker's work supports that. You also point out that 
at least until recently, 40% of the research that's been done is never even made available to the public. We haven't yet gotten to the point of asking you questions about the other 60% and how well that's done. But when you put all this together, we then come up with what some of your colleagues are saying about your work, which I quoted at the beginning of this program. Namely, they're telling you it's wrong of you to publish your research, that we shouldn't tell patients that the drugs don't work because it'll undermine their faith in treatment. This is, this is schizophrenogenic. A person comes in for treatment and you shouldn't tell them that the treatment you're about to give them doesn't work because it'll undermine their faith in the treatment. But what about when they find out that you're giving them something that doesn't work? What does that do to the whole American public's view of treatment itself across the board in every area? That's how my thinking goes. If I can't trust these clinical trials, and it seems like we can't, what can I trust? What is, the, what is this? This sounds like it undermines the fabric of, the, of, of, of all the research, or is it only the research, and this is an important question for you, Irving, is it only the research that's sponsored by drug companies who can make a profit? Is that the research we should be carefully scrutinizing or not trusting? We should carefully scrutinize all research, and uh, it's true that drug company-sponsored research shows better results for their products than independently-sponsored research, but... On the other hand, the research is not that bad, including the drug company research. The problem is not with the research. The problem is that the bad results get hidden. The good results may be statistically meaningful. If it, understand that the conclusions that I have reached about how small and clinically meaningless the difference between drug and placebo is in the area of antidepressants that has come from the clinical trials. I would not have known that had these clinical trials been, not been done. That's what the clinical trials data uh, um, show. The drug companies know it because their own clinical trials are showing it. They can't get the drugs to work better in the clinical trials. Nobody can. So there isn't that much. If you look at their unpublished data as well as the published, it's still their trials. It's still the trials that were done by the pharmaceutical companies. They can't get them to show a meaningful effect. So what you're because saying... They are following scientific methods. They are. So what you're saying is the research itself is good, but they're hiding the results. They're skewing the results. They're skewing... They're, and they're misreporting some of it. They're hiding some of the, the results. If you look at the data... From their clinical trials, that's, it's their data that convinces me that these drugs are not having a clinically meaningful effect beyond the placebo effect. Why isn't the FDA protecting us from this, these, this hidden, this hiding of the data? Here's what the FDA says, that the, the, the federal regulations are that they have to show, they have to have two studies showing a statistically significant difference. And if they get those two studies, they have to approve the, the, the drug. And I've read transcripts of meetings where they do the drug approval, and they note, oh, 
you know, that means they could do studies till the cows come home. That's a phrase from one of the actual FDA meetings. And when they finally find two studies that work, and eventually they will, then we have to approve it. And the answer was yes, that's right. And in fact, what these drugs, uh, in many cases, the situation is that they've done seven studies or eight studies, and they found two where they get a statistically significant benefit. And so they go ahead and prove it, uh, approve it, and they note in their meetings, they say, well, gee, this effect is very small. So, yeah, but it, 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 it's, uh, we're not in the job of trying to look at clinical meaningfulness. They don't. Irving, not if, part of how they decide whether to approve the drug. Are there, the question has been always, are there two trials, no matter how many that were done that don't show it, have there been two trials that showed a statistically significant effect, even if it's not clinically meaningful, and if the answer is yes, then they go ahead and approve the, the Irving, Irving, can you make an argument, a strong argument, for why accepting two positive studies and not asking how many were done that were negative. Can you make an argument for why that's protecting or how that's protecting the American public? Basically, what you're saying is, if I'm a pharmaceutical company, I do 15 studies, 13 of them show negative results on my medicine, two of them show positive, I bring the the two to the FDA, they're not going to ask me about the other 13 and that's protection. Can you make an argument for why that really is protecting the American well, public? Well, first of all, the, the different the, what happens is a little different than that. So you're a pharmaceutical company. You've done 15 trials. Two of them turned out to be uh, significant. You have to submit all 15 trials to the FDA. The FDA sees all the data, including the trials that didn't work. But their criterion is, if two of those trials work, the FDA will approve the drug. I'm asking you to make an argument for why that... There's no argument for that being a sound practice. There isn't an argument. There is no argument for that. What ought to be done, what ought to be done is the size of the difference, how much difference it's making across all of the trials should be evaluated. It should be compared to um, what other treatments can do. It should be compared to what the negative effects are, and that should be the basis for deciding whether to approve a drug, uh, to approve a drug for uh, for marketing. That's not how it's done. It's the way it should be done. This is institutional madness. This sounds like if it were baseball, a guy would report only his hits. He would never. He would report all the other strike the strikeouts. And, the, and, and all the outs that he made, but the statistics that the public saw would be only his hits, and we'd never see all the rest of it, so we'd think he's a thousand batter. <laughs> I know. Things, it's laughable. All of the antidepressant drugs, there's one exception. For almost all of them, what they do is, if you look at the label that the FDA approves, the label says the efficacy of, fill in the blank for the drug name, has been shown in two clinical trials. In some cases, it's three. They don't tell you about the failed and negative trials. They're not put on the label, so the doctors have no way of even knowing about their existence. Fortunately, you're also a clinical psychologist. 
So I'm going to ask you a very practical question. I'm also a clinical psychologist, as you know, and I'm in practice. After this program, I'm liable to see a patient or get a phone call from a patient and saying to me, hey, I heard this program with you and this uh, Dr. Irving Kirsch, and I heard about what he revealed or uh, showed us in his book, The Emperor's New Drugs, but I'm on these antidepressants. What do I do now? Well, Dr. Kirsch, what do I say? Okay, that's a really difficult situation. And I understand the situation. And at this point, what you have to say is, look, this is not something where you can just stop on your own because of these uh, um, side effects that, that you can get, because of the withdrawal issues. So this is something to work out with your physician that you want to taper and try going off of it and be treating, uh, you're dealing with your, coping with your depression, treating it in, in different ways. Once you get on it, it's a hard thing, and there are people that have to find psychiatrists, find physicians who will help them to taper off the drug. There's an excellent book by Joe Glenmullen. Uh, he's written a couple of books, and it's someone who you might want to have on your program on how to, how to help someone get off of antidepressant uh, uh, drugs. He's also affiliated here at, uh, at Harvard, and his work is, is excellent. My biggest concern right now is preventing people from going on it in the first place. Yes. Because of the fact that once you get on it, you can have problems. Because you can create problems for yourself down the line. And there are a lot of problems we know. We know that it increases uh, uh, suicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts, self-harm, aggressiveness in young people. We know that antidepressants um, can increase risks of gastrointestinal bleeding, of uh, stroke, of death for the elderly, of type 2 diabetes. We know that they can have a lot of harmful effects and we know that other treatments, including physical exercise, including psychotherapy, can produce the same benefits without those negative effects. So I would say, do anything. Do anything. If you're not on an antidepressant and you are depressed, you have to do something. Just not doing anything doesn't work. But there are many alternatives. Try these very alternatives. See what works for you. Meditation, mindfulness meditation has been shown to be benef uh, beneficial. Even acupuncture works as well as the antidepressants without having any of the negative effects. Try Actually, it. Actually, I did a little research on acupuncture and depression prior to this program, and one of the things that's pointed out is the placebo effect with regard to acupuncture. There's a, a information on that, that it seems that thinking that the acupuncture will have a positive effect may be what's causing the positive effect. That's another whole topic. I don't want to get into it right now. But I did get a note here to ask you a question. How do we enable the mind to, to have the placebo effect? How do we enable the mind to have the placebo effect, whether we take a pill or not? Because obviously what's going on is you give me a pill, you tell me it's going to do something, it does something, 
But we know the pill isn't doing it. Therefore, you know and I know that it's my mind that's doing it, and my mind is doing something to create a change inside. And our questioner here wants to know, do you, do you have any information on how we can, how, how we can focus our mind to do that? How, how do we create our own placebo effect? Well, you know, there is a, a, a form of treatment that aims to do exactly that, and it is called psychotherapy. Psychotherapy, after all, is something that is used to help people change the way they think about themselves, to change the way they think about the world, to understand things differently, to gain insight, to change their behavior. They're getting all the benefit of the placebo effect without any deception, without any any, um, pills. But you are learning then to do what a placebo can do. That's at least part of. That's at least part of what psychotherapy does. And that doesn't make psychotherapy a placebo because that's what psychotherapy is supposed to do. I'm already picturing an article called Psychotherapy, the Ultimate Placebo. Yes, indeed. And the ultimate non-deceptive open uh, 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 placebo. We've also done a few studies at the, the program of placebo studies, not in the area of depression. One is was a pilot in the area of depression, but in other areas where we have given patients placebos. A couple of studies have done that for irritable bowel syndrome and one for chronic low back pain. Told them it's a placebo. Explained why it should still work. And it still works. And it still and it works. It, it, uh, we've done that with chronic low back pain with patients who are already on pain medication, mostly non-steroidal uh, anti-inflammatories. They're told they can keep on the medication. We give them the placebo, tell them it's a placebo, explain why it works. It doubles the pain relief that they get. And in fact, they are getting more pain relief and uh, relief from disability, from pain-related disability, while at the same time decreasing their use of the medication. You know, I don't want to make improper use of our host and interviewee relationship, but I would love it if you'd send me a hundred of those placebos for black, for lower back pain. That would, <laughs> that would be very helpful. By the way... Actually, well, that's one of the things that patients in the studies have done afterwards. The study is, and oh, that worked so well for me. Can I keep getting the placebo? Can you, keep, can you prescribe it to me, even now that the study's over? Okay. What have we missed in this interview that we, we have a few minutes left? Can you think of anything that we've missed that we want to make sure that the listeners hear? Because this is, it's a huge topic. It's a huge topic. We covered the part about what people should do if, if they're on an antidepressant, and you mentioned that, and, and we, you, you've made your case for why people shouldn't get on antidepressants. I, I will add something to that. Yes. Uh, if you are an, on an antidepressant, and it's working for you, and you're not being bothered by the side effects, maybe the thing to do is just stay on it. If it's not working for you, if you are bothered by the side effects, if you don't want to be on it, talk to your physician, find a physician to help you get off it, and find other ways uh, to treat your possession, uh, your, 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 your depression and, and the issues that you're dealing with. That's one thing. And I will, I, there is one more thing I would like to say, 
And it has to do with the pathologizing of human misery, the medicalization of misery I've seen it referred to. And the most egregious example of it has to do with people who lose a loved one. When we diagnosed uh, depression up until recently, and if someone had all of the symptoms of depression, if that came after a major loss, let's say your child dies, yes, major loss, we're talking really a big magnitude of that, there was what was called a bereavement exclusion. So if it's happened after you've suffered a major loss like that, um, you said, okay, then you're not mentally ill. You're not suffering from this disability. That has been removed. That bereavement exclusion has been removed from the official diagnosis of depression as a mental illness, major depressive disorder. And that means if you lose a child or someone else that you love deeply in your life, and two weeks later, you're given two weeks now, you're still showing signs of being depressed. Oh, then you're mentally ill. You are suffering now from a mental disorder. I find that barbaric. Depression is often a normal response to an abnormal situation. It's part of the grieving process. If there's someone that I'd be worried about, it's not someone who is depressed after suffering a major loss. It would be someone who is not depressed after suffering that loss. And that very person who's not depressed after suffering a major loss is very often a person who is on some form of medication. And we both know that there have been articles written about that. One of the very early articles that made national news was a a journalist of, of some renown who was talking about his antidepressant medicine in very friendly terms. And then he also added, but I did find myself wondering when I went to my mother's funeral and I had no feelings about her death whatsoever because his feelings had been blotted out by the antidepressant. So he lost his humanity uh, to the medicine. You know, we've got uh, two minutes left. I just want to mention to you, you know the famous Duke study comparing antidepressant to exercise? And uh, it's a fascinating study. And I I just wanted to, where exercise comes out to be, you know, much more effective than uh, Zoloft was the antidepressant. What was interesting is that the exercise was more effective than the Zoloft, but the exercise was also more effective than the Zoloft plus exercise. The combination, so it, they, it seemed as though the Zoloft decreased the positive effect of the exercise. Do, do you have any comments on the effect of, uh, of, of aerobic exercise over time on depression? You want to weigh yes. in? and the nice thing about that study also is it was a long-term study, and they were looking at relapse rates and survival rates. So if you look just at the short-term rates, all three of those groups did equally well. There was a lot of people got better. But when you look at the relapse rates later on, the people who are only on the exercise program, they did the best, as you said. And that's one of the reasons that uh, I say if you take an antidepressant, it, it increases 
the risk of becoming depressed again. That's what one of the things that was shown by that study. As soon as you added an antidepressant to the exercise program, that increased the risk of, of uh, relapse. Yeah, and for those of you listening, that's an easy study to find. You just Google Duke University uh, exercise and Zoloft, and you'll find it you know, very quickly. Uh, Irving, this has been a, uh, a, a terrific uh, experience uh, interviewing you uh, because of the nature of your work. Uh, I thank you so much for having the courage to publish it. I know that this book was actually uh, something that was suggested to you based on your scientific research, and you were willing to put in the time and do it so that the general public could understand uh, the nature of your findings. So uh, personally and professionally, I thank you very much. And for your courage, uh, we didn't really get into a lot of the politics of uh, what you might have faced, but maybe we'll do that in another interview, what I mean by what you might have faced by, by, the, by the public at large, uh, particularly the profession, which has a stake in keeping these antidepressants uh, being sold on the market. But this is all a way of saying thank you. Richard, thank you. It's been a great pleasure being interviewed by you. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Please note that uh, we will be back exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time. Until then, please remember that good health is worth working hard for. It just simply is. It takes a lot of work, but it's worth it. And it's absolutely essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you.